you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them and turn with me to the book of Romans. Uh, if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, do not fear. There should be a, a blue one either on the pew at the end of your pew or the pew in front of you or behind you. Uh, feel free to grab one of those so that you can read it with us. We are looking this morning in Romans chapter 12. Our, our primary verses will be verses 9 through 13 this morning. I will read them here for us this morning and then we will pray and, and begin this time of, of study. So look with me, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes these words. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The grass withers. And the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Fathers, we come to your word this morning. We come not presuming to have knowledge that does not come from you. Not, not sitting and standing over your word as one who, who speaks authorita- authoritatively over it. But God, we, we come to your word humbly. Sitting under it, letting it be the authority, letting you be the authority over us. So, Father, teach us this morning what your word commands, what you command. And having understood and having known these commands, teach us how to obey them. Not so that you will love us and not so that you will bless us, not so that you will smile at us or look at us with favor, but help us to obey your commands because in Christ you already have looked at us with favor. You already have smiled at us. You already do accept us. You already have blessed us. And so, Father, teach us to obey not for your acceptance, but from your acceptance. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We have been working our way through the book of Romans for over a year now. We, we began this, this study back last July. And, and so if you've been with us over, over the course of this last year, or maybe you, you haven't been with us uh, at all during that, let me quickly sort of catch us all up together on things that we've seen in Romans to this point. Uh, in, in the first 11 chapters of this book, Paul has been explaining the gospel. He has been walking us through who we are as, as sinners and, and what it is that makes us sinners and what that term sinners mean. And whether we know it or not, Paul lays out for us in Romans 3 that there is no one righteous, not even one, for we all have sinned and fallen short of this glory of God. And then as Paul continued through through these chapters, he he began to to teach us and to reveal that that the law of God was not given as a way out of this. The law of God was not given as a as a means of salvation, but rather it was given as a means of elevating our eyes, of opening our eyes to see sin for what it truly is. Or as Bunyan put it in the Pilgrim's Progress, to be the broom that sweeps up the dusty room and just kicks the dust up into the air. 
And then Paul continued and he began to to show that that in Christ, we not only have salvation and the forgiveness of sins, we have this because he, the son of God, took the wrath that you and I deserved. And just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, so through one man, Christ, life and salvation and forgiveness has come into the world. We we saw in in chapters eight that that. All of the blessings and the assurances that God has given to his people. No condemnation, a place of belonging, uh, adoption as sons, help in our weakness, all of this. And, and chapter 8 ends with this beautiful picture that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We saw in chapter 9 how, how faith, that we are saved by faith. But faith is this gift that God gives those whom he chooses to give it. And that he hardens those that he does not give faith to. And there's so much more that we could we could spin. I mean, let's let's face it. I, I can't tell you in 30 seconds what it took us over a year to get through. But Romans one through 11 and the reason that it's important for us to know what the first 11 chapters teach us in Romans is because the rest of the book, chapters 12 through 16, depend and rely so heavily on it. Because there's many sermons that you could go and hear even this morning. Where the message of this sermon would be, if you do this, then God will do this. And if you go and obey, then God will bless. And if you perform X, then God promises to do Y. But the reality is, church, is this is not the gospel. This is not the gospel as Paul sees it in Romans. This is not how he lays it out. If you read Romans backwards, then that's what you get. If you obey, then God forgives. If you, if you submit, then God blesses. But the way that Paul lays out the gospel in Romans is not if you then God, but it's because God has, so you must. Because God has sent his son, so you must believe. Because God has forgiven your sins in the death of Christ, so you must have faith. Because God has freed you from the bonds of sin, so you must be servants and slaves to righteousness. You see, chapters 1 through 11 teach us what we ought to believe. They teach us orthodoxy. But chapters 12 through 16 teach us how we are to live in light of what we believe. Orthopraxy. And so as we continue through chapter 12 this morning, we, we see very clearly in these five verses that I just read, Paul spits out a bunch of commands, these, these rapid fire commands, one after another, after another, after another. I mentioned a few weeks ago when we began chapter 12 that the first 11 chapters of Romans has three commands throughout 11 chapters. Chapter 12 alone has 35. And this morning we we have command after command after command after command. And it does seem at first glance that these commands are just sort of shotgun blast and a little bit of everything just sort of scattered throughout. But when we look a little bit closer, sitting over these commands is a theme. A theme that not only unites these commands, but it also directs these commands. Because in, in these verses, believer, you and I learn how we are to love the church. This is what it means. This, Paul's commands here in verses 9 through 13 are focused and directed, pointed towards how we as Christians are called to practically love his church. 
And so this morning, that's what I want to do with you. I want to walk you through seven ways that we as Christians from this text are commanded, not suggested, not encouraged, commanded to love the church. And so let's look at these first. Number one, love genuinely. Love genuinely. Paul begins this section with with a major one, and, and many have interpreted this first command as a header for the entire rest of the chapter 12. Let love be genuine. Which is an interesting way of phrasing it, isn't it? I mean, Paul doesn't say, make sure you love each other. He doesn't just say, make sure you you take time to, to show you love each other. He says, when you love each other, make sure it's the real deal. Make sure it's genuine. Which then leads to the question, well, what what is the real deal, Paul? What is meant by genuine love? And we could get into the, the Greek word that's used here is it's the same word that Paul that Paul and other biblical writers use for hypocrite. He says, let your love not be like the love of hypocrites. And Paul is saying, do not love hypocritically. Do not love as if you were an actor on a stage putting on a show when you love someone. And I don't know of a, a culture or of a, a society that has mastered the art of hypocritical love better than the deep south. I mean, we have developed a, a way of putting on a, a show of love, of displaying kindness, while at the same time being able to insult someone straight to their face without them even knowing it. And we do it in the South with three precious little words. Bless your heart. I mean, these words speak love, but underneath all of that, all, all of that makeup, all of that stage acting is a love that is false. Paul says, don't love with hypocrisy, but let your love be genuine. But again, what does this look like? What is genuine love? And I I think that the, the sentence that follows this command helps us better understand what genuine love is. He says, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. I cannot think of a more needed time for understanding what genuine love truly is than this current time in our world, in our society. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, the, the word love is everywhere. And everyone, it seems, shares a similar view on what it means to love someone. And you will find in, in, in all of the world, in all the culture, all of our culture and society, that this idea that in order to genuinely love someone, it means that you must never seek to change them. You must never contradict anything they say to be true. You must embrace everything about this person as they see it. And not cast a judgmental or a a condescending or even speak a hard word ever. We have to agree on everything if we are to love everyone. Church, this isn't love. This is foolish sentimentalism. Love, genuine love, will never embrace sin as a good thing, ever. And genuine love will never turn its back on what is truly good. Because genuine love hates what is evil, and it holds fast to what is good. And it may sound strange to us that for Paul to put such strong and opposing language so close together, this idea of, of loving genuinely and hating so deeply... 
But it's true. And this concept really isn't as far-fetched as we think it is. Marriage, and maybe I should add biblical marriage here, is a great picture of what genuine love looks like. Because within a marriage, you find both this hating evil and clinging to good. Think about it. In a marriage, if, if another woman who is not the wife begins to lure the husband away, drawing his heart, his affections, his desires, pulling him away from her, is it not genuine love for the wife to hate it? Is it not genuine love for the wife to hate what is happening in her marriage? If the wife turned to her husband in that moment and said, well, I love you, so whatever makes you happy makes me happy. Would we really call this true love? No, we'd grab her by the shoulders and tell her, wake up. Someone is out to destroy your marriage. It's good for her to hate that. Because the thing that is threatening to undo her marriage is evil. And she should hate it. This is how this this hatred of what is coming between her and her husband is how she knows and how she shows that her love for her husband is genuine. But at the same time, in this genuine love relationship, a, a husband and wife are called to cling together, to hold fast to one another. And the word that we see in Romans 12 is the same word that's found in Genesis 2. And in Jesus' teaching, in Matthew 19, where, where Jesus says, and the Bible says, that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling, shall cleave, shall hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. What the Bible is teaching us is that in marriage, a husband and wife become so closely clung together that you cannot tell who is who anymore. Alistair Begg calls this a superglue conviction. That super glue that you're trying to put things together and attach them. And all of a sudden you find that the piece that you're trying to put back on is still off. But your fingers are now somehow forever stuck like this. This super glue conviction, this clinging to what is good. Is done so that there is no room at all for any such evil to come in. And should anything evil try to come in, try to drive a wedge between what has been stuck and clung together, you would hate that wedge for trying to tear it apart. And so, Christian, you and I, from the beginning, we are called to genuinely love other Christians within the church. That we must let our love be genuine. And the marks of genuine love is this hatred of evil and a clinging to the good. And so what that means is that if you see your brothers and sisters trapped in sin, don't just wish them well. Don't just pray that they get things figured out. Hate it. Hate the sin that has trapped them. Hate the temptations that are luring them. Hate the lies that they are believing. Hate it. And all the while, hold fast to what is good. Cling to all that God says is good with this super glue conviction where you are stuck to it and there is no getting away from it. Let your love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. That's the first way that we love the church. Number two, 
love like family. Love like family. You see, from a very early point on, the, the church has always referred to each other as, as brothers and sisters. In the early church, this led to a lot of confusion from outsiders who, who watched this new group of people gather together and then husbands calling their wives sisters and wives calling their husbands brothers. And it even led correspondence and letters between government officials wondering what these incestuous relationships really were all about. And no, we're not talking about Mississippi. But what we're talking about is the church. We're talking about Christians being brothers and sisters together. That when we are saved by Christ, we are brought into the people of God. And that people is a family. That we together are sons and daughters of the Father. That we are brothers and sisters with the Son. We are co-heirs to the throne of grace. We have been adopted by God. When we talk about family in the church, this is what we mean. And in verse 10, Paul commands us, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. And in Greek, there are actually two words used here for love in this command. The first is Philadelphia, and the second is Philostorge. Philadelphia, I'm sure that many of us may be familiar with what it means based on the most ironically named city in U.S. history. The city of brotherly love. Go Braves. But Philostorge is, is similar. Philostorge is a, a similar familiar love, but it provides a little bit more depth to this command. Because this is familiar lo- familial love, but it's not between brothers. It's not between siblings. Philostorge is the love between a mother and her child. This is the love that, that does not have explanation. It just happens. Mother holds her child and that this this love grows because that child is hers. No one has to tell her to love her children. It is rooted deep within her. I mean, you can see quite the picture here, can't you? Of, of what our love to one another as Christians is to be like. It's a, it's a love between brothers on one hand that, that no matter what you do, no matter how angry you make me, no matter how frustrated I am, how much I want you to get out of my room, you're still my brother and I can't change that and I love you for it. But at the same time, it's also a love between a mother and her child. You will always be a part of me and I have no choice but to love you because we belong together. That's this command. That's what loving the church looks like. It is a love between family members. And what makes this familial love so unique and powerful and profound is, is the fact that you can't choose or change your family. And I know that we're sitting here, many of us with our families this morning and enjoying a special day of, of worship together with our families. But how many, if we're honest, how many of us would like to make some trades? I'll give you my brother for your sister and we'll split grandparent custody every other weekend. And tell you what, I'll even throw in my teenager for free. Okay, fine, I'll I'll pay you to take my teenager as long as you can make him take a a shower. You can't choose family because if you could choose your family, your family probably wouldn't look like what it does. But in that, there's this wonderfully deep love that exists simply because... You have no one else. There's no one else to who loves you like family loves you. There's no one else you love like you love your family. 
Yes, he frustrates me more than anyone else, but he's my brother and I love him. She gets under my skin so easily and she makes me want to pull all my hair out, but she's my sister and I love her. We never see eye to eye on anything, but he's my father and I love him. And that's family love, isn't it? That's what it should be like in the church, too. For, for we are a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We may frustrate one another. We may disagree. We may sometimes just not like being around each other. But that's okay. Because we're family. And we're called to love like family. Number three. Love and humility. Love and humility. The next command in verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is the, the command that Paige hit on well during this children's story this morning. So I won't spend a ton of time here. But we see within this command, there is a call for Christians to love in a way that goes against the current of society. Because you see, in the Roman world, there was a distinct hierarchy between classes. Lower classes served the middle classes who served the higher classes. And there was never any crossover. The higher classes never looked down to show honor to those beneath them. And Paul tells, tells this church in Rome to engage in this competition of sorts. Regardless of their socioeconomic class, they were, they were to work to outdo one another in showing honor and showing love and serving each other. But in order to, to do this, in order to engage in this competition, this requires a lesson in humility. You see, in order for us to love one another by outdoing one another and showing honor, we have to begin with the belief that other believers are more worthy of honor than I am. That they are more deserving of the attention than I am. That they deserve more praise and accolade than I do. And that what they do is more important than what I do. And how often do we think like this? How often do we look around the church and think to myself, I'm getting too much attention and praise. Now, see, to love the church means putting others before yourself. It means elevating their needs and elevating their ministry, elevating their gifts and their their in their input into the church above what you provide. Making sure someone else receives honor before you do. And this is what it means to love in humility. Number four, love in service. Love in service. Verse 11 is here the next command to love. He says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And this might not sound like a command to love, but let me show you how this is. See, first, we, we have to understand that love is more than a feeling. Love very clearly is a verb. DC talk got that one right. Love is a verb. It's more than what you feel. It is something you do. It requires action. It requires movement and direction. And in order to put our love into action, we, we do have to first begin with our attitude. So Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal. How many times has someone you loved needed you to do something and you thought, I just don't really want to do that right now. 
And we come up with a host of reasons why it can wait or or why I could do it later or why it doesn't really need to be done. But ultimately, all of these reasons are insufficient because what we're really being is what Paul calls slothful in zeal. It is a, a laziness of passion or what we would call today complacency. It's that feeling that the way things are right now in this moment is good enough. It's not perfect. And there are things to do, but I can live with how it is here. And Paul says, avoid complacency. Don't just settle for something less than genuine love just because it's easy. And the solution to this, the way that we avoid complacency is by being fervent in the spirit. Which literally reads to be set on fire by the spirit. To be ignited, to be excited by the spirit moving in you to love and to serve and to move. I mean, think about it. No one is ever no one is ever complacent. No one is ever sitting still whenever they are set on fire. You get set on fire, you move. And this means that as believers, we who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we are called to be driven by the spirit for our passions, for our desires to be ignited by his presence within us. But this is not, as some have taken it, to mean uncontrollable enthusiasm and energy beyond compare. We don't just run around enthusiastically ignited by the spirit. This fervency that Paul is calling us to is also given a direction. Serve the Lord. Avoid complacency. Be ignited by the spirit and serve the Lord. This is the direction of this ignition, this fervency of spirit. Because the best way that we love one another in the church is by the Spirit igniting our passions to better serve the Lord together. And that service takes many shapes and forms, but ultimately what Paul is teaching here is that we love one another as we serve the Lord together. So resist the temptation for complacency. Allow the Spirit to ignite your passions and serve the Lord. Because love being a verb means that love serves. You serve those you love and you love those you serve. And by serving the Lord, we love the people the Lord loves, his church. So we love in service. Number five, love in the ups and downs, love in the ups and downs. I think one of the the greatest blessings of being a part of a church, in my opinion, is never having to go through life alone. I mean, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. When you are a part of a church as a believer, you have an entire community Who is there with you step for step, every step of the way. And that's what verse 12 teaches us. That we are to love one another in the ups and in the downs and everywhere in between. Paul says first, rejoice in hope. These are the ups. Rejoice in hope. When a brother or sister has an exciting opportunity before them at work. When a husband and wife find out they're pregnant. When a a young couple gets engaged. There's great hope for the future. Everything is is looking up and we celebrate and we rejoice and we walk with this. These people in the highest of highs. We are given the privilege to rejoice together when hope comes. And so when life is looking great, when it's hopeful, we rejoice together. But we are also called to be patient in tribulation. These are the downs. When a believer gets passed over for that job promotion. When the pregnancy becomes a miscarriage, 
When the wedding is called off, when affliction and suffering and cancer and sickness and hurt and pain comes, Paul calls on us as believers to be patient together. And notice he doesn't say the best way to love one another is to come in and fix everything for the other person. He doesn't say when someone is hurting, go make it better. Go make them stop hurting. No, he says the best way that you can show love in those hard and those low moments and those tribulations is to be patient with them. Just to go and wait with them. To be patient through that tribulation. And that may sound odd to just wait for it to pass. But as Christians, here's the reality. You and I know that every tribulation in this life will do just that. It will pass. Now, that's not saying that it's going to every tribulation is going to end in rainbows and happiness. I mean, that cancer may take your life or it may take the life of a loved one. But there is a far greater healing that any doctor in this world could ever provide should death, should that cancer result in death. And that tribulation will pass one way or another. And so as Christians, we love one another by rejoicing in the times of hope. And we love one another by being patient in the times of hardship and tribulation. And ultimately, lastly, we love one another by praying through it all together. That's what he says. Be constant in prayer. This is everything in between. How do you navigate between the ups and the downs of life together? You pray for those you love and you love those for whom you pray. The more you pray for people, the more you love them. And the more you love them, the more you pray for them. So, Christian, do you know a brother or sister who's rejoicing this morning? Then pray with them and for them in thankfulness for the hope that God has given to their lives. Christian, do you know a brother or sister that's hurting this morning? That is enduring a a time of tribulation? Then pray with them and pray for them in patience that God would bring this time to an end. Because genuine love is a love that makes it. In the ups and in the downs and everywhere in between. Number six, love the hurting. Love the hurting. Verse 13, Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints. In Rome and the early church throughout Europe and the Middle East, being a Christian often meant being cast out of places that were for so long a place of belonging. Which meant that when you gained Christ, you likely lost something else. A home, a job, a family. Social standing. And with that comes a loss of financial stability. There were a large number of Christians in these early days of the church who just didn't have much of anything. And then there were others who had lots of everything. Still faithful believers, but had their their wealth, had their finances, had their homes protected. One of the most incredible components of this early church And how they loved one another was the ways that they they provided for one another. How they they loved and cared for one another through their resources and with their resources. They contributed to the needs of the saints. That verse in Greek, it reads literally, have fellowship with with the needs of others. It's such an interesting way of putting it. Have fellowship with the needs of others. Because the reason that we give generously to those that are hurting is not because we want to try and pick them up or or put them back on their feet. We're not offering handouts just because we can. 
We give generously and we help the hurting because we share in their hurt. And we have fellowship with them in their burdens and, and in their hurt. And for the last several months, we as a church have been, we've had this special fund in addition to our, our regular giving to support one of our families that's been hurting and is, is in a hard time. And many of you have contributed to that generously, and, and I'm, I'm thankful for this. And I know that this family is thankful for it as well. But what strikes me here is, as a wonderful work of God's grace is that this fund and the contributions that you have made are not done out of obligation. They're not done out of some sense of duty to this church or to this family that's hurting. But you give because you love this family and because their hurt is your hurt and you carry it with you just as much as they do. You love her and you you hurt with her and you share her needs. You have fellowship with her in this hard time. And out of that fellowship in her needs, you give. And this is how we are called to love the hurting. Not by standing far off and throwing money at problems and situations. But by entering into the hard stuff. Sharing burdens. Having fellowship with those that are hurting. And helping from their side. Not from a distance. And so we love the hurting. Number seven, finally, love in the home. Love in the home. I'll be honest here with you for a moment here, church. I think that we do a great job of loving the hurting. Number six. And I think that's a strength for us as a church. But I'm not sure that we're as strong on number seven as we may think we are. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. You can make a meal and you can share a casserole with the best of them. As we're about to find out soon enough. But hospitality. Hospitality is about more than just cooking a meal for someone. Hospitality is handing someone a key to your home and saying, come over anytime. And that feeling that each of you just got, that that question that raised in your mind, the furrowing of those eyebrows that I just witnessed across the room, that's where I'm saying we need work. And we need grace. You see, Paul doesn't say that when an opportunity arises and hospitality is needed, make sure that you are hospitable. No, he says, seek out hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. We are called to pursue this, not for wait, not to wait for it to knock on our door. And you see, for Paul, hospitality wasn't just a nice thing to have in a church. This was a necessity. He needed Christians to be hospitable to him as he traveled from city to city because there were no hotels for Paul to stay in. When he came to a new city, he needed Christians to open up their homes for him to have a place to sleep. And they did. And so Paul is calling the church in Rome and he's calling our church to be hospitable, that we need to be a church that is known for seeking out hospitality. And here's what this means practically. This means inviting people into your home for dinner and for fellowship. It means accepting those invites when they come to you. It means lowering the castle walls that you've built around your home and allowing people inside. Hospitality is loving people with the home and in the home that God has blessed you with. And so we should love each other in our homes. Seven marks of Christian love for the church. 
And we're about to go and, and eat a buffet where you can pick and choose all of the, your favorite foods that you see on the tables before you. But before we do that, let me remind you here. This is not a buffet. These seven marks, you don't, you don't get to pick which of these seven you're most comfortable with or str- strongest in. And then leave out the ones that sort of leave a bad taste in the back of your mouth. All seven of these commands to, to love the church are given to you, believer, for you to obey them. And the reason that we are called to love like this, to love the church like this, is because we have been loved like this. I mean, think about it. God's love for you in Christ meets every one of these seven criteria. His love for you is genuine, is it not? There's no truer love than the love of God in Christ for you. And that love is clearly displayed in his hatred for evil and his clinging to what is good. He hated the evil so much that he dealt with it once and for all in the sacrifice of his son. He clung to the good so tightly that he has saved a people for himself through that sacrifice. This love of God is familial. Before Christ, you and I were outsiders, strangers, aliens. We didn't belong in God's family. And yet, in Christ and through the Spirit, we have been adopted by God. And we who were once outsiders are now called sons and daughters of the King. Peter says, once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Because you now belong to the family of God in Christ. God's love is humble. Philippians 2 teaches us about the humility of Christ. That though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's no more humble love than this. The Son of God humbling himself to become human and to die on a cross to bring honor to you. God's love is serving. He doesn't sit back and allow your life to go on on its own, but he is actively sustaining you, carrying you, upholding you with his hand. Serving you with his mercy every single day. His love for you is active. It is not slothful. It is intentional. And God's love survives the ups and downs. There's no amount of good. There's no amount of bad that could ever take you away from the love of God. You may be rejoicing this morning. You may be deeply hurting. But either way, the love of God for you does not change. It does not fade. It is not insufficient. It is sufficient for both the ups and the downs. And through prayer, we continue to learn what that love looks like. We know that God's love goes to the hurting. Because his love is for you is found in Christ who came to us, who shared our hurts. He had fellowship with us in our pains as he took on human flesh. There's no greater fellowship that God can have with the hurting than by becoming one of the hurting. He became human and he suffered under the struggle of a broken world. He tasted death. He shared in your hurt so that he could redeem you from them. And his love withheld nothing. There was no expense. He was not willing to spend even giving his own life and love to you. And lastly, we see God's love as an invitation into his home. 
Because through all this, God in his love has sought you out. He has pursued you. He's chased you down. And he has opened his home, his kingdom to you. Is this not what Jesus taught his disciples in John 14? In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to that place. That where I am, you may be also. That's the love of God displayed through hospitality, preparing a place in his home for you and then coming back to take you there to the place that he's prepared. Christian, I'll I'll end here with this final thought. If you want to grow in Christ likeness, if you want to become more like Christ every day. Then you must love what he loves. And he loves his church. Do you? Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word this morning. Thankful for the challenge. Thankful for the commands. Help us to rest in the fact that you have loved us like this. And because you have loved us like this, help us to love one another like this. Teach us these things and write these commands on our hearts that we may love one another. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.